0: I want to stress that I'm very much not a crypto person, but I still keep an open mind and I still want to think about the parallels between web one and three and probably the best people to talk about it are Mark and Jason and Chris Dixon.
1: I think there's a great story, Mark. One of my favorite Mark stories is uh, this also affects your design choices. So in Mark's world in Netscape, they chose to make all of the transport protocols of you know, HTTP, people that use that, you guys chose to make it all text based as opposed to binary, right? And if you go back in time, I'll, I'll let you tell the story, Mark.
2: But. Yeah, yeah, so any expert protocol design, anybody who had ever worked at a big company who understood how to design networks, because there were networks. There were computer networks for you know 40 years before the internet emerged. Yeah. They were just all proprietary. And so you'd buy an IBM mainframe and they would sell you an IBM network. They had a technology at the time called Token Ring and it would connect all your IBM computers together. You know, you couldn't connect other computers to it. You couldn't connect your Apple Macintoshes or whatever to it. But you could connect all your IBM computers together. And so then they'd have all these protocol designers, right, who were like, you know, world experts at building network technology. And the one thing that they all knew for sure was you do binary protocols. And the, the reason you do binary protocols is because you need to, you know, networks were very slow at that point. You need to optimize every single bit. Right, and so you want to like pack as much data as possible in a few bits as possible because that's how you get performance out of what we're so, so
1: not human readable. Not human
2: readable, and so right, the text
1: is not human readable. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's right. So if you looked at the protocol data going over the wire, right, you just see a gibberish. So it's just a bunch of random numbers, you know, coming across, and then you would need specialized software to try to decode that and repack that. And this this was this whole kind of arcane area of network design. And then the internet people, starting originally with things like SMTP and so forth, the the internet people started to do these text based protocols. And then HTTP was a text based protocol. And the idea of a text-based protocol was it's human readable, right? And so I can read it, you know, without having to look for things and then I can write it. I can emit it, right? And so one of the things that made the web take off early on was that you could build a web server with four lines of Perl script at the time, right? Because you could use all of the standard text parsing technologies built into, you know, languages like Perl and Python, which made it very easy to process and to emit text. And so you could basically have this little text processor that basically generated this protocol, and then you could create a web server to do whatever you want. And at the time, you know, people ran thousands and thousands of experiments of different kinds of web servers they could build. And you could just kind of hack it together. You You could write a new web server in five minutes. Um, and all of the experts, right? All of the protocol designers from the old world, all were like, "You guys are out of your minds! Like this is so dumb! Like you guys are deliberately going backwards. You are like just avoiding all the hard work of actually making this work." By the way, don't you see how slow this is? Like this is just like unacceptably cripplingly slow. You've got all of these handshakes back. And, and by
1: forth. the way, they were in some sense right. It was yes. slow at that time. You really had slow modems, and so right. it's a really interesting design choice that you guys made, Mark. Yeah, thinking.
2: that's right. So we decided to create yeah. a problem, right? Because the big problem was how do you get broadband rolled out, right? So so part one of the problem was, like, how do you get anybody to use the web? And in that case, you would have wanted to optimize performance for the networks you had then. But the other question was, like, what could you do that would provoke people to actually roll out and buy broadband? right? When that was going to be very expensive. And so we actually deliberately created the problem. Like we deliberately made the performance problem worse in the short term to actually motivate people to invest in broadband. Right. But wasn't it
1: also so that by making it human readable, you were making it easier for developers. Easier for developers. You were pitching developers That's who right. would then build great apps, who would right. then compel you, who would then provide a reason why you wanted to buy broadband. And use That's like right.
2: That. So the users would yeah. sit there and they'd be like, wow, all of a sudden the internet does all this amazing stuff. And then, oh my God, wow, is it slow. Yeah. And then it's like, then you call the phone company or the cable company and you're like, when can I buy a cable? modem yeah. and then all of a sudden the cable companies are like, oh my God, there's all this demand for cable modems. And that's a broadband. But right, the critiques in the moment, of course I think this is where you were headed. The yeah. critiques in the moment were like, this sucks, this is slow, this is stupid, yeah. like it's all these same things. There was another analogy I always love pointing to is that the New York Times reviewed the first laptop computer that shipped in the it's like 1981 or whatever, 1982 And I think it was probably the Compaq or Osborne at the time. It was the first laptop computer. The first laptop computer in 1982, it weighed, I think it was like 43 pounds. Um, And it was basically this giant suitcase.
1: Luggable. Luggable, they'd call them. Luggable,
2: they called it. And so you'd have like this 43-pound thing on your lap in the plane, and you'd like unfold it. Um, and you know, if your legs didn't snap under the pressure and had like, you know, a four inch screen and like, you know, it's slow as hell. And so the review is hysterical in retrospect. It's like, you know, laptop computers are the dumbest idea we've ever seen. This is ridiculous. Nobody is ever going to buy one of these. This is never going to work. Right. And of course what they don't anticipate is like, okay, all of those problems are all of the opportunities for all the entrepreneurs that are going to come along and miniaturize everything and, you know, create what we have today. And so again, it's this overall theme of like, okay, there's the reality of what you have today. There's all the critics who are arguing against the reality of what you have today. In a lot of cases, they're actually right. But the fact that they're right is actually totally beside the point because what they're not understanding is the potential. They're not understanding what this is going to turn into. And they're, and in particular, they're not going to understand what happens when like a lot of the world's smartest people devote themselves to solving all these problems. And that's how you ultimately get these amazing outcomes
0: out the other side. Mark, this entire conversation, I do want to go back to the problem of the internet at some point as we tie out this thread, but the similarities here between, you know, Web1 and what we're calling Web3 are just so juicy, right? I mean, you talked about the ability to spin up a web server with four lines of Perl, right? And how, you know, that was human readable, but it seemed like such a bad idea at the time. It just reminds me so much of like the Ethereum white paper and Solidity smart contracts and the ability to spin up a token with like just a few lines of code. Now, everyone said that would be a terrible idea. And you talked about actually doing it this way created another problem, which was how do we get broadband? And I feel like that's very much what we've seen in the past five years since the birth of smart contracts, at least in our world, which is very much like, okay, now we have smart contracts, we have tokens, but we don't have bandwidth. Okay, we don't have scalability, we don't have enough block space, we don't have fast enough transactions per second. I'm wondering here, Mark, before we get back to kind of the problem here, but do you see these similarities? Like how similar is web one to web three? Do you just see them everywhere and you're like, oh, I've seen this exact same story before, it's gonna play out in the exact same way. Tell us about the similarities, but then maybe also tell us about some of the differences because each wave has got to have some differences, even if it's a sort of a fractal of the last.
2: The most easiest way to think about it is when you get something like this that has a movement, that has this sort of collective effect, has a movement behind it, and is attracting many of the world's smartest people to work on it, basically the criticisms play out differently than the critics think. So the critics make this long list of all of the problems. And you know, you alluded to like, you know, this long list of all the problems with Ethereum today, or a long list of all the problems with Bitcoin or whatever. But you're getting these genius engineers and entrepreneurs, right, would flood into the space, which is what's happening right now. And what happens is they look at that list of problems as a list of opportunities, right? They're like, okay, like that's the punch list. Like, these are the things that I can do because if I fix these problems, it's going to be really important. It's going to really matter. I'm going to be famous, right? I can build a real business. Like, uh, you know, this is going to be how I'm going to make my mark in the world is I'm going to fix these problems. And so I don't know, it'd be like if you had a house project or something, the house was going sideways and you get all these complaints and then like all of the world's best architects and like, you know, master builders like showed up, you know, the next day to like fix your house. (laughs) Like, and you've got like all these incredible, you know, amazing, you know, whatever. It's just like all of a sudden you've got the best house in the world. Right. And this can actually happen in this kind of world. This can actually happen. So the big dissimilarity or the thing that's not the same, I think, is it's this untrusted versus trusted thing, right? So on the internet, the answer almost always was to liberate, right? For the internet 1.0, 2.0, the answer almost always was to liberate. It was to create, basically, break down walls, have more people to be able to participate, have more people be able to build apps, Right. Have more freedom. You know, it's why the internet had this incredible ethos of freedom of speech for a long time. Right. That, that kind of that has changed a bit um, more recently. But like, you know, for a very long time, it was, you know, this is, you know, sort of inherently a free speech environment. Um. It's a sort of this iconic, you know, the classic essay, as John Perry Barlow wrote, this is like 25 years ago now, I called it the Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace, right? And it was basically, it was, and if you read it, it's like a very poetic thing. And it's like, basically, we're going to leave you and your grubby world behind. Again, it was this kind of spirit of liberation. It actually, a lot of it actually came out of the 60s. It was kind of part of the cultural revolution at the time. And, and so you were kind of driving towards, you know, less and less trust, you know, less and less permission, less and less authority. Right, over time. And then, but like I said, what were we missing? We were missing the other side. We were therefore missing trust. We were missing authority. We were missing permission. We were missing, you know, the ability to transact with people, form trusted relationships, transact, send money, store money, like, and then have all the other economic arrangements that, you know, kind of that the world wants to have, you know, loans and contracts and insurance and all, all these other things. Like, we just didn't have any of that. And so there is this other side to it, which is, at least the way I think about it, is Web3 is bringing trust to an untrusted network, Um, right? And look, there was trust involved, like people had to believe that encryption worked, right? And so, you know, there were trusted components to what we built. But the big thing here that strikes me is just like this is an opportunity to build the sort of internet phase two, you know, or web three is like an opportunity to basically build trust into this untrusted environment and have people come out the other side of this being like, okay, like, for example, we could actually imagine the entire global economy running on the blockchain, like the entire thing, like we can imagine 30 years from now, or 50 years from now, like the entire global economy cuts over, right, and everything cuts over. And what would it mean for that to happen? And how would people have to feel about that? And that's a, that's a very different kind of problem than the one that we have. I mean, I think from that high level point of view, it seems to make sense. It's just that the applications that have come out so far haven't been very compelling.